You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Dennis Stefanenko, who is using Django and Python to build an invoice processing and financial planning service for sports season ticket holders. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your service? Sure. So I work at a New York City area ticket reseller called Salem Seats. Basically, what we do is if you had a season ticket account with any sports team in the U.S. for a popular sport and you can't make the payments on it anymore, we'll take it off your hands or sell it for you and take a percentage of your revenue. And when the COVID epidemic happened, a lot of problems came into about paying for these teams because it was very hard to keep track of how much we owed or the season ticket holders owed. In many cases, the teams completely canceled events. And I made an internal tool for the company to keep track of our refunds, to plan how much we are going to owe next year, and basically just do our books. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like uh, a tough time to be in with that type of business. Yeah, it is, but we're fighting. Nice. So on the tech side of things here with this project, is this something that you are just building yourself or is there like a small team around this one? So there was a team, there was a foreign team of consultants from India or Pakistan, and they had a whole app before that in PHP and a couple other things. I'm not exactly sure what their tech stack was, but it, it, it looked nice, but it wasn't functional. So I pretty much had to redo it from scratch. So the new app is me, my manager, and uh, another person working with us part-time. And all three of you are coding it in some at some point, or is it just like someone does managing and someone else does coding? I'm the only software developer. The, my coworker is a QA analyst, and my manager is a technical guy. He helped with the design a bit, but he didn't code on it. Okay. And how long has this site been up and running for, roughly? I think about four months. Just now in September, we had four months. Okay. So is that four months where your new rewritten version is up and running, or is that the old version and this one as well? So this is the third version. The older version I rewrote by the end of, uh, I think, I believe by the end of April or May. It came out incrementally. So I'm not sure when we can say that, you know, this was the final, um, this was the final iteration of the old version. There was a version of Season Ticket Manager that was all in Django and just had a little bit of jQuery functions uh, helping, you know, helping do stuff on the front end. That was what we used up until mid-July. And the current iteration of it with React came out about a couple weeks after that in like mid or late July. Okay. So what was that process like initially though, like trying to transcribe that old PHP code into uh, Django? Was it something where you just kind of like went, you know, function to function and just ported it over to Python or like, how did you approach that? I took the static files that they had. I took the general layout. I couldn't really use too much of it. I couldn't use any of the PHP code. So I didn't even try to do it function by function. I redid a lot of the design because it seemed like a lot of the things were redundant. There were many features of the application that could be done much easier. I didn't like the way that things were stored. There wasn't really any significant, there wasn't any like serious database schema. Things were just kind of like uh, stored like across like a CSV file over here. And then another kind of resource would be in the database, but it wasn't clear why one wasn't and one was. So I just completely redid the data model. And I took the static files and whatever, you know, UI stuff I could. Okay. Was it one of those situations where like you open up a PHP file and it's like 
6,800 lines long of PHP with HTML and CSS and all that inlined in there with like SQL queries or no? Yeah, it was exactly like that. Yeah, good times. So when it came <laughs> to rewriting this app, uh, what motivated you to use Python and Django in the end? Um, Python was the comfortable I was most comfortable with. As far as web development, I used Rails in the past. But I just wanted to work with something that was a little new to me, something that wasn't Python. Django seemed like the closest thing to Rails that I could find. I wanted to use as little JavaScript as possible in the beginning. So it just seemed like the obvious choice. Right. So when it comes to using Django in this app, did you take advantage of any of its built-in features like the Django admin or, you know, just rolling up things into Django apps and whatnot? The best thing for me has been the ORM. The ORM has been like just unbelievably valuable, like indispensable. I use the admin panel a bit, but uh, because there's so few users, it, it's an internal application at this point. I don't really have a heavy need for some of that kind of stuff. Uh, I would say what came what came in really useful was the models and the views and the templates previously, but I don't use them too much anymore. Right. So you mentioned this is an internal app. Like we'll be able to link to the public app, but we're not going to really be able to see too much like what's going on behind the scenes. Do you want to maybe draw a picture of like, like do, how would you describe the UI of this app? Like what types of uh, things would people do inside of it? It's very table-based. So it's I drew some inspiration from Google Sheets or Excel because that's where everybody worked on this kind of stuff before. So the idea is that as these financial transactions come in, they're categorized according to a set of predefined rules. And then you can see them on a table and you can see what invoices they're under. You can project how much you're going, oh, you can filter by you know any kind of thing you want by date, amount. And it makes it very easy to pr predict what our cash balances will be, you know, how much we owe for these tickets to certain season ticket holders. What it looks like is I would say it's like a, a more uh, high tech and more feature rich version of uh, Excel, maybe. Right. So tabular data displayed with, you know, links to do things like edit, delete and view stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that uh, the first iteration of this app was using Django templates with jQuery, and now you're using React. What motivated you to go down that route? Were there just shortcomings of uh, the UI that you couldn't tackle otherwise? There were a couple of shortcomings. I think that I could have gotten around. So for example, drag and drop, I couldn't do the way that I, the way that I wanted to before. So I had to move to a React-based iteration, but jQuery had stuff for that, so I could have made it work. On the other hand, there was another need for our accountant who's a tech savvy guy, but he's not a software engineer. He needed to pull this information ad hoc and, you know, crunch it on his side in the Microsoft cloud. So I transitioned to an API based, a DRF based implementation because I could make, uh, I could make endpoints for him and then a user based spa also at the same time. Right. So you were able to maybe reuse some of your, I guess, business logic for each individual API public end for him as well. Yeah. DRF has been awesome. Yeah. And just for our listeners out there, that's the Django REST framework, right? Yep. Yeah. I'm actually not a Django developer, but I'm getting to learn a lot about it since there's been so many Django episodes, which is awesome. Uh, so this application, do you have it broken up as uh, like microservices or is it just one monolithic app sitting in one Git repo? It's a monolithic app. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty much a classic Django application minus the templates, I think. I do a couple of things on the server with uh, cron and bash, just a couple of scripts here and there. That's as far as I go outside of Django and React. Okay. And then for the app itself, you don't need to give like super specifics here, but do you know roughly like number of lines of code? Like, you know, is this a small app or a large app basically? 
Yeah, so I checked it before we got on today. I have 3,200 lines of Python and 4,000 lines of JavaScript. Okay, well, that's a pretty even split. Yeah. You know, besides like the drag and drop, we're using other interesting front-end features that would be worth talking about. There is one in particular. There's a great library I found called Material Table. So I had a very difficult time in the beginning uh, agreeing on a UI kit or finding something that looked good and was, you know, wouldn't make a giant bundle size. Uh, I, I tried to find something that was fit for a business, but I didn't need enterprise level. And I also didn't want it to be just a couple of widgets. I wanted it to be a framework. So I settled on a library called Material UI. But the tables that they had didn't work very well. Uh, I, I don't really like the way that they're implemented for a couple of reasons. But more importantly, it wasn't very extensible. It was very hard to add features. There was another library called Material Table. It's a little confusing because Material UI has its own tables. And then there's another library called Material Table. The second library is just amazing. I've never seen anything like it as far as on the front end, like just like a, a tabular thing that you can do anything you want in. It's just unbelievable how much you can override it, how much you can extend any component. You can make it look like uh, like it's not even a table anymore. To, you know, it's just internally stored as a table. It's just it's been invaluable in presenting the information. Oh, okay. And then as for like that material UI, is that just a competitor then to Bootstrap? Like it's both the CSS, but it also has JavaScript components. As far as I understand, uh, Bootstrap is hard to use with React. They have an uh, implementation for it. But the way that the React syntax works, it's declarative and everything needs to be implemented within the React ecosystem. So if you're using React, it, it's becoming less popular to use CSS. It's very popular to use inline styles. So you can go into the merits of uh, either side, right? But at the end of the day, pretty much every library, every library I was loading into my app had inline styles and I had to find something that worked around that rather than try to have it half inline styles and half CSS. So Material UI and the stuff that work with it made it very easy for me. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm actually not that familiar with Material UI. Like, it sounds like now it's maybe just a JavaScript component then. Is there just no, like, styling aspects to it? Like, I would think there would be because it's, like, literally called UI, but... It's a whole development kit. It's a whole, like, design language. So what they do is it actually comes from Google. They have, like, a specification, just like a programming language of specifications. This one has a specification on certain predefined components should look. So it tells you how a button should look, um, why, how the shadows should work. It tells you how data tables should look. So it's like a whole language for how the user interface is going to work. And you can either use that default implementation, Material UI itself, or something that builds on that. Okay, I see. Yeah, now it's ringing bells. It's that one design where all the input forms, like a text field, would have like just the border on the bottom. Yeah, it's very plain looking. Yeah. So with all these front-end assets here and, and dealing with React, do you use something like Webpack then to bundle and manage all of that or no? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, all that kind of front-end stuff has been like, it's been a lot of fun to work with, but it was just such a, like, it was such a learning process. When I first learned how to code and I did a little bit of uh, web development stuff back in like 2011 or 2012, the Django templating system or the equivalent in Rails was pretty high tech. That was like about as far as you uh, as you needed to go or what you needed to know. And if you knew some JavaScript to make some things like Sparkle on the front end, even you know all, all the better. Nowadays, for the front end, there's like a thousand different technologies that you have to learn just to get your app to run. Webpack was one of those. There was Babel also. There was just a lot of different things I had to learn, like little things. Right. Yeah. No, those little things add up, and especially when you're trying to combine six or seven things in a row. It suddenly it's like 
it's really hard to cobble all those together without knowing the big picture like beforehand. Yeah, it can be frustrating. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned Babel then. Is, is all the JavaScript code ES6 then? Uh, yeah. Okay. And now you, you did mention that, you know, in a lot of cases with, with React, you're using a lot of inline CSS, but do you happen to also use some type of like a, a CSS preprocessor like SAS or is it just straight up raw CSS? No, I usually, what I do is in the modular components, like if I have a module, for example, for list view, I'll put the styles in there. And Material UI has a, I don't think you call it a preprocessor. It's pretty much just a function. It's just a wrapper for it, really. But I do the inline styles in there usually. So you mentioned that, you know, it was a little bit tricky to get all of this pulled together. Do you happen to be using Docker by any chance for development? Or did you just kind of just install all the stuff locally as needed? No, I use DigitalOcean for server management. And if I have to do some kind of virtualization stuff, there's a couple of stuff in, uh, or like for virtual environments, I'll use Python. I use Vagrant back in the day a little bit, but I never really had a need for something like that. Okay, so right now on your dev box, so like before you push it up to production, you just have Python installed with the virtual environment and then you just run uh, some type of Python app server. Do you use like GUnicorn or USG or something else? Yeah. So the stack itself is Django, G, uh, Green Unicorn, and then Nginx. Okay. What about things like Celery? Because you kind of mentioned that you do some cron jobs. Like, do you just use those cron jobs for doing scheduled stuff in the background and like not using Celery? Celery is a great idea. Actually, Celery, I really wanted to use at some point. I set it up. I did a couple of things in it. And then I thought about it. I really didn't have the need for stuff like that because there weren't enough jobs running. It's gotten to the point now that as I'm adding features and I'm integrating it with tools that we used previously here, um, there is a much bigger need for it. So I'm going to add that in at some point. But it's kind of a, you know, if you're working on a big team and somebody can focus on scheduling the stuff, making salary work and all this kind of stuff, it's great. But I have to think about where I'm going to be most productive. And for the most part, that wasn't salary, although it's definitely on my radar now. Right. So what type of, what type of cron jobs then are you running now? There's a couple. So the primary cron job is to grab our financial information from our vendors, from American Express, for example, which, by the way, is a whole story of how I was able to get. There's a, another credit card company called, uh, I don't know, I forget. It's like a trucking, like a single use card, very useful in this case. There's a couple like that. So the idea is to take this financial information, integrate it into a common data model, store it in the database, and then process it. So I have a cron job to gather this information and to save it, and then a couple other cron jobs to process it with rules. Okay. So do you have any like error correction to prevent things from moving forward? If like, let's say, I don't know, let's say there's three cron jobs and something fails in the first one. Can you recover from that? Like by not executing the second one until the first one recovers? No, we don't have that. That does sound like a great idea. There's a software somebody was just telling me about recently exactly for that purpose called Apache Airflow. Have you heard of it? I have not. It's exactly what you're talking about. It would be very useful in my case. Right. So going back to some things you said about your tech stack, uh, unless I misheard something, I, I didn't hear you mention some type of database. Do you use Postgres or something else? I used Postgres before, but I changed it back to SQLite. The database itself is very light. I have right now, I believe, 15,000 records, and I can't see it ever getting above 30,000. So if everything is secured as far as grabbing the, uh, as grabbing the data, and, you know, I'm not worried about get anybody getting into the console. I think I don't really have a need for Postgres that much. The one thing that I, could, I really missed from that database was arrays. But other than that, SQLite suits my purposes. 
And I think if you're working on like a, a solo project for a company or a contracting thing, it's, you're, you know, you really got to think about where you're going to be productive. So I can spend time configuring Postgres, RabbitMQ, Celery, and trying to get everything to work in a perfect tech stack configuration. But then I'm not actually adding in features that the person, you know, paying for this application wants. So unfortunately, I have to make sacrifices somewhere. Right. So speaking of features like coming at you from management or whatever, like what's the turnaround time or scoping of like a new feature? Like, do you typically develop in, you know, one or two week increments or like it kind of just depends on what the feature is? It depends on what it is. Little stuff that I can present as like a UI type of thing, I try to do instantly because for management to see something like people are visual. So if they see a feature push very quick, not only does it look like you're working very hard, but it also makes them feel good about the project. So, for example, I had a feature request where to change things from just being uh, like a floating point number into a specific currency format, you know, like red if it's negative and whatever. There's a couple other things. So that's very easy to do relatively. So I tried to do that first just because it makes people feel like the project is coming along fast and, you know, everything is cool and they can see it happen. Uh, as far as features that have to do more with the domain logic or the business logic on the back end, I try to plan them out. So I'll talk to management. I'll see what they want. I'll write everything down just like in a giant list. And then I'll go through it later and I'll see what the priorities really are. Most of the time I really spend dealing with the features is pushing back on scroll creep. I have to say, hey, guys, like we can do this in a much easier way. We don't need to put in all of these kinds of things. Let's not recreate the wheel. I'd say about half of the features that I'm actually asked for, there's no real need for. Right. That's awesome that you have that power to basically, you know, crack the whip and, and say, mm, actually, let's not do that. <laughs> not always. <laughs> I wish I had it more. So uh, going back to what you said before about your tech stack and how it's deployed, do you want to go over maybe some libraries that you're using at the Python or Django level that really help building this project? Like what's interesting in your requirements that text file? Uh, the most important thing would definitely be Django REST framework. DRF is just so extensive. It's very, uh, I'd say it's like very complete. There's a lot of things in it. Anytime I have a question about how to do something, I can generally find the, I can usually find the information in the docs. If I can't find the docs, I can find the answer to it either on the, the, the like the GitHub issues, discussions that people are having about DRF, or I can find it in the source code itself. So 90% of the issues I have are solved within DRF. There's a couple of libraries I used to work with it primarily for authentication. So I use uh, social auth for implementing Google-based authentication. And there was another one for OAuth authentication. I can't remember the name of, but I'll, I'll check later for you. Okay. And then what about other features that the site might have? Like you mentioned an accountant, and usually, I don't know about your accountant, but mine really prefers like CSV files and PDF files. Like do you use any libraries for maybe exporting PDFs or no? The PDF exports are handled within that library called material tables. So that's why it's so awesome. There's just uh, so many things that come out the box or if they're not out the box, I can implement them easily. And CSVs are so important to our business, I created a separate endpoint just for them. So if our consultant, for example, wants to uh, you know, filter for certain accounts or transactions, he can just add the parameters to a request and download a CSV instantly. Very cool. Yeah, so that PDF then, you're just generating that completely client side then based on whatever being visible in that table? I have two implementations of CSV exports. There's that client size one that works through material table, and that's for local data that you're dealing with in your browser window. Now, if you want to filter more granularly, 
through the API endpoints, you can export through that way also. So there's two completely separate implementations. There's one that's out the box through material table, and the other one works through Django and uh, like a services layer. So now switching gears a little bit talk, to talk a little bit more about Nginx, do you actually have Nginx hooked up to serve your SSL certs, like using Let's Encrypt or something, or no? Yeah, that's exactly what I configured. Nice. Do you also have Nginx set up to, to possibly serve and cache all of your static files also? I don't really use it that heavily because Nginx is like a whole other, you know, it's like a whole other world. If you wanted to, you could spend half of your workday just configuring it and making it work better. Because the site doesn't come under heavy load, I don't have need for things like, uh, you know, the more complicated features, maybe like worker processes or proxying. I don't really use that much. Uh, what was really important was gzipping. I needed to get the bundle size down and using React and Material UI was very difficult. So that feature was great. Um, and I pretty much just use it for the SSL and serving, uh, you know, serving like one or two static files because the user user facing implementation is a single page architecture. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I guess you just run Django's, what, what is that one command? Like something collects static to generate the bundles? Yep. Or not the bundles, but it, uh, I guess what, MD5 tags all the files? Yeah. Cool. So you mentioned earlier that you are using DigitalOcean. Do you want to go over your thought process for picking that cloud hosting provider? <laughs> That's a funny story. So DL was around, it was what management picked for this application before me. So my boss gives me this link. He's like, hey, sign in or whatever. Just look at it. Tell me what you think. And I go to this IP address and I can't find anything there. But then when, uh, no, sorry, when I log in through DL, I can't find anything there. But when I go to the IP address, the site is clearly running. So the first implementation that was done by contractors. And I see the information. I can click around. But when I log into DO on the server, it's, it's clearly empty. When I shut it down, the site still works. So now I know that, you know, they have a, a separate implementation running somewhere else and that the code actually isn't uh, on our side. So I pulled, the info, I pulled the source code from that site and then brought it back to our DO server where it was supposed to be all along. And that's how I got with DO. It wasn't uh, really wasn't a, you know, like a technical reason or I don't know a, a judgment of any sorts. It was just a default. Right. And now that you've worked with it for you know quite some time now, a couple of months, how how's it working out for you? It's great. I have no qualms with it. It lets me do everything I want. It's cheap. It always works. Backups are easy. Anytime I have an issue, I can find a fix to the like the, the DO console. I really have no problems with it. Uh, I would like to, in the future, work more with AWS stuff. I think for our uses, the serverless functions, Lambda could be very useful. So if I was to do everything from scratch, I might think of doing something like that. Right. You think you would go all in then with the serverless or maybe just use a couple of Lambda functions here and there like as needed? Since it's such a small uh, or like niche application, I want to say, and in, uh, for now only an internal tool, I think the serverless functions could be very useful just because it's really doing something that's very easy to set like a config file or set like definitions for. Like we need these transactions from these dates and we're going to tag them as this category. So somebody could just go go over the course of a day, put down certain rules and the server could crunch up the information for you and send it back to you. So if I was to do everything from scratch again, I might go all in on uh, on the serverless functions actually. Interesting. Yeah, I happen to be working on uh, a project now for a client where we're not going all in with serverless, but you know, he wants me to make a couple of Lambda functions to do certain things. And I must say it is an interesting pattern. I don't know if I'd ever develop a full site like that, but it's definitely cool. Like 
just to have this little self-contained 100-line Python file that executes whenever you call it behind some type of API endpoint where you would never even know that it's a serverless app running. Like It's just a regular API endpoint. I think the idea of it is really fascinating. Just you know, breaking up a giant monolithic application into a couple of different fragments that each do one thing, and then just linking it together with you know a couple lines of glue code. I uh, I think it's kind of like the fad right now. So everybody wants to work with it. People want to keep up with the latest technology, and it's not always clear you know what's better. But in my case, I think what was very useful was using technology that had been tried and proven, like Django. So if I tried to do it through the serverless functions, I'm sure I would have run into a lot more snafus. Yeah, for sure. And like you say before, you know, about Django REST framework, uh, you just Google or go through their docs and you can find an answer to basically every question you can possibly come across in your mind. Like they're super, that's super valuable to have. Yeah. DRF documentation is awesome. Yeah. So going back to your DO setup, when you ended up creating that new server, what operating system did you go with? Was it Ubuntu, Debian, something else? I went with Ubuntu. It was just the one I was most comfortable with. I've used Linux a bit in the past, only for server hosting. So I don't really have the qualifications to tell you what's the difference between like Fedora, CentOS, and Ubuntu. Ubuntu is Linux for me. So it was just what I felt most comfortable with. Right. Did you roll with the latest LTS release at the time? Maybe 1804 or 2004? I don't remember what it was, actually. Right. Maybe the default setting in DO when you go and create your server? I think so, yeah. Speaking of servers... uh, is all of this then running on one single uh, DigitalOcean droplet? Yep. Cool. So what are the specs on the server? The, so we have two. The first one, I believe, was a little bit more higher tier. There was more memory. I think there was like two gigabytes of memory, and it had certain backups scheduled. But we really didn't need all that. You know, the, the site doesn't get stressed that much. Even the data, like I said, it's maybe like 15,000, 20,000 records at most. So uh, I have two servers. I have the test one and the production one. The production one, I think, has about a gigabyte of memory, and the other one has uh, maybe half of that. So pretty much just like, you know, the the cheapest tier you can get. Right. Yeah. The one gigabyte of memory one is five bucks a month. That's like the entry level one. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy that we live in a world now where you can just spend five bucks a month, get a pretty decently powerful server in like literally 30 seconds. Yeah. It's awesome. Yep. So you mentioned you did have a little bit of Linux experience before setting all of this up. When it came to setting up this server from scratch, did you just go in there, SSH in there, and then uh, set everything up by hand? Or did you end up using some type of you know configuration management tool like Ansible to set it up? No, I did everything from hand. Actually, uh, I had a couple of problems along the way. I messed up a few times, so I had to use the backups. The best thing for me, because my home computer and my office computers are all Windows, the best thing for me is WSL. So I usually try to do things on my end on WSL and then recreate it on the server. So if I need to work with something in Bash or, you know, something like that, I'll try to test it on my side at home or in the office first, and then I'll put it on the server. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I run WSL here as well. It's uh, very nice. But do you go all out then? Do you have like a a WSL uh, instance running where you can push code to it and you have Nginx running there just to serve it? Yeah. So then it's almost like you have like a local testing grounds there in WSL, but then you have another testing server that's in DO, and then finally the prod server? The original testing server on DO, I use to keep stuff uh, for the users. So if somebody at my office needs to work on these invoices, but, um, you know, like a certain feature might not work uh, the right way, or if the data diverges between the servers, I might just ask one of my coworkers to work on that other server. Oh, okay. That makes sense. 
So going back to deploying though, uh, do you want to go over what your entire process looks like from development to production? Like let's say that you're just about to add a new feature into the app. Do you, you want to start from there? Sure. So as like the sole developer at my company, I don't really have that, uh, you know, well-defined of a workflow. I usually, I, I write up some code, I'll write a test for it, and then I'll see how it works on my side. If I, you know, I run localhost and I'll try to run it, which I can't always do because I don't have the same information that's stored on the server. But I usually try to make it work on my end. And then once everything looks good, I'll push it up on the server. First, I'll make a backup, and then I'll push it up on the server, git push, you know, git pull, everything is fine. Okay. So then do you also push it to something like GitHub as well, just as like a secondary place for backing up the code or no? Yeah, absolutely. I use GitHub. Okay. But then you're still, you are pushing direct to the server. You're not like using GitHub Actions or something like that to do it? Oh, I'm sorry. I guess I wasn't clear. I usually, I'll push to our GitHub repo, and then I'll pull it from the server. I mean, on the server side, I'll pull from GitHub again. Oh, I see. Okay, so then you're kind of just SSHing into the server directly and just doing a git pull from GitHub. I like to keep separate branches going. So like like I was talking about having that second smaller server going for certain things that might break easily or I'm not too confident about, I'll do the same thing with branching. I have a lot of different git branches. So if I need to implement like a ad hoc feature, like, hey, we need to do certain kinds of categories for these invoices or we need to export them in this kind of way, if it's something I need to do really fast because it's uh, the, the business is pressuring me, I'll usually do it on a different Git branch. Okay, so then is the intent there to develop it on that branch, but then merge it into master when you're ready to actually push it and make it live? Usually, usually because of the nature of the business, I end up having to write a lot of functions that I don't expect to be used heavily in the future, sometimes at all. Sometimes it might just be something we're doing in the books quarterly and we need something very specific, so I'll pull the information. And then if it's a good idea, maybe I'll come up with a way to try to merge it back into the main branch. Right. Have you ever considered using stuff like uh, feature flags then to turn things on and off? No, that sounds like a good idea. I think it would be useful. When it comes to that deployment process, though, what about uh, dealing with secrets? Do you have like an ENV file somewhere that's not pushed up onto GitHub but makes its way onto your server? Uh, the secrets, actually, I had a lot of problems working with in the beginning. So basically, I guess there's really only two proper ways to do it, right? You can have the environment variables, which a lot of people uh, will say is like the correct way to do. And I'll do that sometimes, but I also like to have just a JSON file. You know, I, I came up with a way to do it originally where we were using a separate server just to grab the information, like very, you know, confidential or uh protected financial information and that server would be very like secure nobody uses it on a day-to-day -day basis and it would just send the information to another server where i could process it but at the end of the day i was thinking about it you know if somebody gets into the server if you're dealing with a cybersecurity intrusion no matter what you do if you have a json file even if it's hashed or you have an environment variable all somebody really needs to do is boot up the debugger so I try to protect the information from the user side so nobody can get in, but I'm operating under the assumption if somebody's uh, on the server, whether it's a secrets file or it's an environment variable, it's gone already. Right, yeah. So I mean, if it's a, a .env file or a JSON file, at the end of the day, you know, it's a plain text file, uh, you're done if someone's in there. Yes, yeah. And you know, security is one of those things that it's like, there's so many different ways to do it. And I think it's easy to make it overly complex in the beginning. So like I was saying, originally, the architecture that I decided on was that we would have a completely separate server that would crunch information that was confidential, and then it would send it back to our server. 
you know, like uh, hashed or already processed. But I was just thinking it was so much work for some information that at the end of the day might not even be all that important. Only a couple of things in there are very important. And as long as I secure the server, as long as I make sure nobody can get the permissions and the authentications on the user side to access the information, I'll, you know, I'll keep the server secure and just keep everything in a JSON file. Right. When you say like authentication, do you mean just like a username and password that they would log in through through the website? Yeah, so that alone won't grant you the privileges. There's a different level of permissions. All thanks to Django and DRF, actually, it was very easy to do. So we use Google-based authentication. You need a Google account registered under our domain to sign up. You can sign up normally. It'll process you. So I made ad hoc accounts for people, but you won't have any permissions by default. Only people granted uh, permissions by default are the ones who work for Salem Seats. Uh, very cool. So it's almost like... The people who are on your whitelisted domain are admins, I guess, but without having to make them an admin in the database, like specifically. Yeah, exactly. So now let's talk a little bit about disaster recovery or unexpected events. Uh, you did mention having backups earlier before. Do you happen to do like a full DigitalOcean server backup or do you just take your SQLite database and copy it somewhere? I've done both in the past. I think it's better practice to copy the whole server because if I want to take apart what happens, I need access to the, you know, the logs and whatever's going on. So if I know that I'm pushing a major change or I'm adding a lot of features, I'll take a snapshot. I don't rely on the weekly backups that they generate because you can't really predict when they're going to do them. So I try to take a snapshot every now and then when I know that important work has been done and an important feature is about to be pushed. I'll make sure that we have something backed up. On a day-to-day -day basis, if I'm changing things and I'm worried about uh, corrupting the database or adding in incorrect information, I'll just copy the file over. And that, that's actually a big reason I really like SQLite. It, it's super easy to move the information between places. If you have a business where you don't have the need for something like Postgres, I really think people should consider using lighter databases. You know, and not like, not, not like MongoDB just for no reason, but I really like working with SQLite. It makes my life so easy. Yeah, no, there definitely is a convenience factor just to have a file that you can copy around and like, that's it. That's your export and import. Just move it somewhere. Yeah. So going back to uh, like unexpected events though, like let's say, and maybe you have some stories around this, like have you ever had a situation where your web server was just throwing a lot of 500s, like, like errors? Like how do you get to those errors? Do you get emailed or do you just like SSH in and look at log files like once in a while? I'll usually just log in directly and check out what's going on. So I had an error that I remember talking to you uh, over email about. So what happened was a DNS file problem. So the original registrar that the domain was purchased from had DNS files from back then. And I put up my own DNS files on DigitalOcean. So everything worked fine for a while while that other server didn't work. So I figured out what was going on and I just deleted those DNS files. But it was a weird problem for a while. Yeah, I'm like actually happy that this DNS or IP recycling was an issue for someone else besides me. Like, I guess it does happen to other people and it's crazy when it happens. Yeah, I actually heard about another guy who had the problem on one of your podcasts. I don't remember which company he was working for, what his name was, but he had an interesting story to do with that too. Yeah, IP addresses and DNS, uh, lots of things can go wrong. It's one of those things that's easy to forget about. You make it once when you're spinning up the droplet or setting up a server and then you really never have to look at it again. Yeah, honestly, going through my DNS records, it's like, yeah, you just go in there whenever you're adding something new, or I guess you should do it when you're deleting stuff as well. But yeah, I mean, that might just happen once or twice a year or something. You know, it's not in like your peripheral on your day to day. 
It's a very annoying problem to fix also because they don't update right away. The changes have to propagate, right? And every user that uses your application, in the meantime, you have to tell them to uh, invalidate and renew their DNS cache. So people will be saying, why isn't the site working when it's already been fixed for a couple hours? Yeah. So going back to your case, though, with maybe unexpected events and uh, looking things up, what about non-error stuff? Like when it comes to logging and metrics, do you have... Uh, a specific lag service that you use? Do you happen to use DigitalOcean's like built-in alarms to where like if the CPU gets a little bit too high or the memory gets too high on the server, you'll get emailed automatically? I typically just crawl through the system control logs. So I look through the Nginx ones every day. I look through what Green Unicorn is doing and then I'll check what Django is saying. Those three haven't given me any, any issues so far. There's been a couple of times where things uh, were like hanged a little bit because it was processing too many things. So, at, you know, in the morning, I try to grab all the information. The server will automatically pull everything from a cron job. Sometimes there's a couple of problems with that just because it's overloaded and I have to go in and pick through it. But um, really, my method is just to stay on top of the system control logs. Okay. Do you also run database migrations as part of your deploy, like at the very end? Database migrations are always kind of a pain. I have to make sure that... Um, you, it, 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 the data that I work with, I've changed the schema a couple of times and I'm always trying to back up whatever work we have. So like I was saying, I try to push out UI features all the time. Even even something little like that, I'll try to back up the database. I usually will take a snapshot, but I, I don't want to take too many because they take a while to generate. So often, like, like you mentioned, I might just copy and paste the SQLite file for a little while and then you know bring it back into the directory if nothing changed. Okay. Now, going back to disaster recovery one last time here, uh, what monitoring, do you have any external sites like checking to make sure your website is up, like something hitting your site every five minutes looking for a status code 200 on like the login page or whatever? No, I just check my Slack messages. Right. So you think you would get uh, messages from your manager or someone else would relay a message in there? Yeah, well, I don't have a thousand people that I'm relying on to use the application. It's just no more than 10 on a heavily trafficked day. So if it goes down or something's not working, I'm sure they'll let me know right away. So by the way, speaking of uh, those people using the site, do you happen to send emails out? Um, I had actually, I had a system set up before where we were sending daily emails to the account and to the chief financial officer of our, our spending. So it would grab the information from the server and then send an email out. It got to the point where I realized that people were using the application to see that information anyway. And an email was just kind of, it wasn't necessary. So like we were talking about with the scope creep, that became one of the things that I was able to push back on. Okay, so at the start then, when, when maybe you were dealing with emails, uh, what transactional email service did you use? And then I guess you got rid of that? Uh, it was just a Gmail API. I was just sending emails through that. I would generate like a, a log or a list basically in CSV format, but it would just be in an email. And I did it through the Gmail API and like the Python standard library. I didn't do anything fancy. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was thinking like, if you, like, let's say I were to make an account on your platform and I wanted to get my password reset, like how would that workflow happen without any emails being sent? There is a way to do that. There is a way to do that through one of those libraries. I believe either Social Auth or Django All Auth have those enabled. I turn that feature off, but it works out the box. So it's just a settings configuration thing. Okay. So now maybe we can uh, start to wrap things up a little bit here and talk about my favorite question here, which is what are your best tips and lessons learned from building this project? 
I guess the advice that I would give to somebody who is in my situation. So my story is, I uh, was a finance guy. I wasn't a software developer, uh, you know, at, at all up until a couple, a couple years ago. And then I slowly got started. So I only became a software developer earnest. I would say six months ago, it became my full-time job. The advice I would give to somebody who was looking to make that transition is to learn how to read other people's code and to pour through documentation. I had a very hard time in the beginning figuring out what to do when the docs didn't tell me what to do. And I was afraid to look through the source code because there were so many different files you had to go through. There were so many different classes I had to read. And I, you know, it's not like I didn't understand the code, but it would just seem like a monumentous effort. But when I started doing it, I realized that even if I have to spend 10, 15, 20 minutes going through a couple classes to figure out what's going on, it's worth it because I can use that knowledge in the future. And the more you look through other people's code, the better you get at it. There was there were a couple of very, very specific bugs that I tried to fix with DRF. And the only way I was able to do it was by going into the source code. So the number one tip I could give anybody is to read other people's code. Yeah, that's uh, amazing advice. And also impressive that you were able to get this whole thing up and running just with a couple of months of dev time. Like, that's awesome. Yeah, I got a credit software for me keeping my job in this industry because we haven't really been turning any revenue since this whole COVID epidemic started. Our entire industry is on hold. MLB looks like it's not coming back this year at all. No other sports are really happening either. Broadway, which was our bread and butter for a while, is shut down until March of next year. So I really credit Season Ticket Manager for giving me a career. Yeah, that's that's really, really great to hear. I love it. Uh that you can just get into something so quickly and, and make something so tangible. It's a great story. Yeah, that's what I love about Django also. If I had to use something like Flask, which I use in my personal projects now, I wouldn't have had all the tools available to me. I'm really thankful for the open source community in general, all the people out there that contribute to code for other people to use like you know, for projects like this. I didn't have to go to school to you know learn about data structures and algorithms. I took a couple online classes on stuff like that, but I was able to just read the documentation, a, a, a tutorial for a few hours, and apply a little bit of planning and logic, and I made something that other people can use. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, our, our industry is amazing like that because it's like you can literally just sit down and watch YouTube videos and read documentation and come up with something versus trying to be you know, something that requires like an actual lab, right? Like if you wanted to become like a doctor or a dentist or like a marine biologist or something like that. Yeah, my dad is a self-taught software developer, actually. So like, I guess like father, like son. Right. So Dennis, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem. But before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Sure. Yeah, I'll send you my GitHub profile. And if you guys want to look at the site, you can see the structure of it. You won't see any information, so you won't see any of the features. But you'll see how it looks, and you'll see the, the different nav links. So people will be able to understand what it does. Sounds good. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, or leave a review if you like the show.